Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. Uh, I know that you are as aware as I am that the world is gathering right now in a variety of ways. That there are a bunch of rallies and there are people that are joining together for whatever specific purpose or intended desire it is that they are seeking as an outcome. And it is providing a lot of energy. It is creating a lot of momentum. And the categories and the walls of division and hostility, it seems to be filling the air because people are choosing their side. And you know as well as I do that this is not necessarily always a positive thing, but that there's a lot of heat, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of hostility. But I'm grateful to be rallied together this morning with a group of people that are rallying because of the name of the King, because of a love and a passion and a desire that they have for Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be in the midst of a group of people that are passionate, that are wildly obsessed, that are consumed, that have been baptized into the deep end of devotion, that are committed not for some cause, not for some voice, not for some activist group, not even for some political campaign, but that this morning we are gathered under one name. And he is a king and he has a kingdom. And we are here because of the love that we have for Jesus and the allegiance that we have pledged to him. For I have pledged my allegiance, I have bowed my knee, I have turned over my heart, and I have submitted all of my rights. I have forfeited the right to my own life for his sake and the gospel. And this morning I feel as if I came to release a clarion call to consider the implications of the gospel and to recommit yourself quite possibly to what you've already been committed to but in a fresh and more determined way than ever before. The gospel. The gospel. You see, it's important in these days that we take a few steps back and we survey the land because there are a lot of distractions right now there is a lot of chaos there is a lot of potential things that are vying and lobbying for our attention for our devotion and if we are not careful we can end up becoming consumed with things that are satisfying the desires of our culture but are not ultimately satisfying the desires of the kingdom because there are things that our culture is fighting for that our king may not be. Because our king has a kingdom, and that kingdom has a culture. And it's important that we don't get swallowed up in the systems of the world, in the cultures of the nations, vying and fighting with all of our energy and lobbying alongside of interest groups and political sides and different narratives and governmental structures and all of the power conversations of our day that may not be satisfying things that are ultimate, even though they seem to be providing solutions for things that are immediate. Um, we don't want to get tossed around in the immediate. We want to serve the desires of what is ultimate. And in order to do that, 
we are going to have to take a few steps back in order to re-familiarize ourselves with the main thing. What is the main thing? I think that we would have to consider what that God is actually doing and the purpose that time is serving. And when I say time, I mean all of time. I mean all of the generations from beginning to end. We know that he is the Alpha and Omega. He is the author and the finisher. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the designer and the one that finalizes and brings to conclusion your story, my story, and every story for any man, woman, or child that has ever lived. But time is serving a very specific purpose. And what we find in Matthew 16 is the invitation of Jesus in order to involve our lives into the purpose that time is serving. You have to consider that God chose you to be alive right now. That sounds really simple. But when you consider the implications, God didn't choose you to be alive 2,000 years ago. He didn't choose you to be alive in the days when Christians were being gathered up and they were being fed to wild beasts in the Colosseum for entertainment. He didn't choose you to be alive thousands and thousands of years ago in the days when the children of Israel were tracking throughout all of what was the known world at the time, attempting to live by the covenant devotion of the law, to be in a missional aspect to the rest of the nations. God selected your life and my life for the generation that we are living in right now. That means God sees you as a solution and not a part of the problem. That means when he thought about all of the issues, when he thought about all of the brokenness, when he thought about all of the dark agendas, when he thought about all of the corruption and all of the wickedness, even as it was like Jesus said in the days of Noah, when every inclination of men's heart evil at all times, God selected your life and made an intentional decision when there was a consideration of what 2020 would look like. He said, I need you to be alive for such a time as this. I need your life to be included in the conversation. I need your life to be a part of the equation, not so that you can do things unto your own name or not so that you can exalt your own fame or not so that you can involve yourself in all of the whirlwind of hostility of worldly desires and the tug from the current of all the different directions that the world is seeking to pull us. But God knew that his loving influence in your heart and the way that he would be able to possess you and take up residency on the inside of you. That through your loving devotion to Jesus and your allegiance to him as king and your determination to advance his kingdom and to ready the nations for his return, God knew that you were supposed to be right here, right now. And that when all of the stage of history is being set, that he is trying to involve our lives in what he's doing throughout the nations. This is the invitation that we find in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is speaking to those that are near him. And in verse 24, he says, Then he said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must first deny himself. Jesus starts at the point that most of us hope we never actually have to confront. He must be willing to first deny himself and take up his cross and follow me.
For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? For the Son of Man, hear these words, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Then repay every man according to his deeds. We have to understand that all of time is serving God's desire to prepare an eternal companion for his son. All of time is readying a people being formed in his image, harvested from every tribe, nation, and tongue. It is a redeemed and a reborn creation that will serve God's desire as an eternal companion to his son that he loves and has chosen to give his kingdom to. That the bride, listen to the language, the bride of Christ is the eternal companion of Christ. Paul would have said it this way in 1 Corinthians 5 when there was a dispute and believers ended up in court because they couldn't settle the matters between them. He says, wasn't there anyone among you that had wisdom? But he wasn't just talking about a worldly wisdom. Paul's encouragement to them was to consider things in an immediate way by the implications of what we believe in an ultimate way. And he says, don't you understand that you are forfeiting your witness? Why? Because there's coming a moment when God is going to reconcile all things into perfect loving harmony with his son as king and rightful ruler. And he said, don't you know that you will rule nations with Jesus? He said, don't you understand that you will judge angels with Jesus? Paul's exhortation to them was to understand from a bigger picture, to reacquaint themselves with the main thing, to not get caught up being tossed to and fro day to day by all of the practical things that want to deceive us and distract us and pull us into the world's way. Paul said, don't you realize that you're a part of a people that's much bigger than your feelings? Don't you understand that you're a part of a people that's much bigger than your own name? And I get it, especially in the West. We are so bent and consumed with conditioning ourselves to be so self-absorbed. And we use verses like Luke 19.10. Well, don't talk to me about the gospel because the gospel tells me that God loves me because the Son of Man came to seek and to save and Jesus loves me. And I get all of that. I get all of that. But we have to understand that my story fits into his story and not the other way around. Amen. That his story is not seeking entrance into my story so that he can become a tool that I can use to better my own life. The gospel is not, I chose him and so I'll figure out where he fits in my life because he loves me and he's some genie that I can rub his belly and get my wishes all the time or like a vending machine, pop two quarters in, press the buttons of my desire and out pops whatever it is that I want. No, that's a cultural understanding of who Jesus is and what he is all about. He is not a genie, he is a king. Yes. 
in the gospel is he chose to break open his own life so that I could enjoy his life, which I did not deserve, and he would lay down his life to save my life. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 gives us an immediate evaluation that carries ultimate or eternal implications. God is looking over Adam because he has formed him from the dust. He has taken time. He has breathed life into him. God made Adam because he desired fellowship, not because he needed it. God cannot be all-powerful if God has needs. He has no needs, but it does not mean that he doesn't have desires. And there's a loving fellowship. God in himself is a, a divine community, Father, Son, and Spirit. God in himself is a divine family of sorts. And so everything that God does bears his image, which looks like family on mission, which is what our purpose is as we ready the nations before the great return of this wonderful king. In Genesis chapter 2, God is surveying the landscape of the garden, and he's looking over Adam. He formed Adam, and he put him down in a particular sphere of influence, and he commanded him, I'm going to walk with you. We're going to enjoy this wonderful fellowship. I don't understand what it was like in the garden. None of us were there, but God was there, and so was Adam. And Adam knew it because God walked with him in the cool of the day. Was God physically, tangibly there? I, I don't know. I, I believe it because of the way that it reads. But Adam knew that he was there. And God gave Adam a particular responsibility. He gave him a job, if you would, to tend to the garden. Uh, hear this, all of my single guys. Adam had a job before he had a wife. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, I know there were some single girls in here that were like, you better preach that. Adam had a job before he had a wife. Um, but let's consider some other things. Adam had a job before he had a worship song. He had some dream of ministry. Adam had a job before there was a particular call. The call was to love God with all of his heart and to be responsible in a particular sphere of influence. This was the way that he loved the Lord well, was to be responsible with what it was that God had commanded him to be accountable for. And that looked like a particular space in a real place, which was the experience of the garden. And while God was looking over him, in chapter 2, verse 18, we find a statement that is said in an immediate way, but it resounds throughout all of eternity because of the implications that it carries. And God says this as he's looking at Adam. He says, it is not good for the Son of Man to be alone. <laughs> it is not good for the Son of Man to be alone. Is that what it says? It is what it says. But hear this as the father looks at his son in all of eternity and he says, it's not good for the son of man to be alone. And we see in Adam's story that he lays Adam down to sleep. We see in Jesus' story that he lays him down into the grave. We see that in Adam's story, he splits his side <laughs> and pulls a piece of him out of him in order to form a companion that he would enter into covenant love with that would be joined into the accountability and the responsibility of ruling all of creation together. 
we see that in Jesus' case, his side was split and blood and water poured out. The release of God's desires, the laying down of the Son of Man's life in order for there to be the potential to form a people, to create a bride, a companion in an eternal way and not just in an immediate momentary way. We are not just the bride of Jesus in the days that we have to be alive, but when we cross over to the other side of our last breath, even as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there's coming a moment. He considers it to be the mystery of the resurrection. He says where what is perishable will become imperishable, where what is mortal will put on immortality. And Paul says in the twinkling of an eye, at the sounding of the trumpet, we will be changed forever. We will be glorified. Glorified, even as Jesus was on the other side of death, raised by the Spirit, glorified forever, now ascended into the heavens as a man sitting at the right hand of his Father, awaiting the day when all of his enemies will be a footstool under him, and he will return with his rewards, with his judgments, and with his kingdom in order to reestablish his Father's desires to rule creation, all of the created ones, even extended into the cosmos. This is our Jesus, and it is not good for the Son of Man to be alone, for I will make a suitable helper for him, is what God tells Adam. And he forms a bride, and then he presents him with his bride that he formed. He took a piece out of him and formed something that was a part of him and then presented it to him and brought the two into covenant and established them in a place of fellowship and accountability where they would rule, where they would have dominion, where they would serve God's desires and establish and advance his kingdom throughout all of creation. But we understand that this is not just an immediate picture, but it gives us a glimpse of things that are ultimate, of things that are ultimate. Revelation 19.7 tells us that we are headed towards the marriage supper of the Lamb and that there is coming a moment, a day in time because again, time is serving a real purpose according to God's desires and there's coming a moment in time where the bride will make herself ready. Where the Spirit's goal of fashioning a people with no spot, no wrinkle, no blemish will have its perfect work, and God will have harvested his creation. God will have redeemed those that are willing to love his son. God will have raised up and formed a people that are going to serve his desires in eternity. Eternity being the experience whenever we are alive, glory alongside of Jesus in a place that is going to go on forever and ever and ever, which is beyond the human mind's ability to comprehend, but forever we will love him we will rule with him. We will serve his desires throughout creation and extended forever. And there is coming a moment where God's work in the nations will be complete. And then he will release his son to return. Oh, we do not hear much in the larger Christian landscape about the return of Jesus. But in the verse that we read, he said, I will come again, and I will come again in the glory of my Father, with, and I will come with his rewards. We must understand that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, there's coming a moment where every man that has ever been alive, hear that, every man, not just some, not just those that are a part of a fivefold, not just those that had a desire to serve in ministry, not just those that ran a business, not just those that were movie stars, not just those that were wicked rulers, but there's coming a moment when every man that has ever been alive 
is going to come to what he calls the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, all of the deeds done while in the flesh will be passed through the fires of testing. And he says that for some, it's going to be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. Because the things that we were living for served immediate desires, but they did not fulfill ultimate or eternal purposes. He says that some of the efforts of our life, though we rallied a lot of support, though it got a lot of people excited, though it contributed to a lot of financial goals, though it created a lot of vision and luxury, though it established a lot of sense of prominence and influence and fame, for some, when they approach that great day, and listen, every man, not just some, every man, when they approach that day, some of them, man, my heart trembles at the consideration that we could possibly get swallowed up in life doing a lot of things that meet the criteria of the world's agenda, that we could get distracted and tossed to and fro by waves of deception, causing us to live for... Jesus said, if anyone is trying to protect or preserve their own life, he's not talking about in the confrontation of death He's not talking about in moments where you know your life is riding on the line and it's choose Jesus or die. He's talking about in the idea of who you think you're supposed to be. He's talking about in the idea of who it is that you think you're supposed to be and all of the energy that comes from that idea that is animating all of your life and its desires. But he said there's coming a moment when we're gonna stand before this great king and we're gonna give an account for everything that we did while we served God and had time to live in the flesh. For life is but a vapor, it is but a breath. It is here today, but it is gone tomorrow for no man is promised tomorrow and we are never guaranteed another opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And Revelation 19, 7 tells us that we're headed towards a marriage supper for the Lamb. This is marriage language. That there is a bridegroom that desires his bride so much so that he thought she was to die for. That he would come and lay down his own life on behalf of the people that he knew his own blood would be able to purchase. And that now you and I are a people by our faith in Jesus that have become born again. What does that mean? Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot only enter the kingdom, but he can't even perceive the kingdom. For a man must be born again. What does that mean? Through our faith in Jesus, God has now transitioned us or transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness, which Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, at one time we all lived our life in this place bound by corruption and the spirit of disobedience that was working in the hearts of sons and daughters, wielding corruption and causing us to be bound to the spirit of the air, the rulers of the age. But praise God by his loving mercy and his kindness who has set us free from the domain of darkness. And Colossians tells us he has now transferred us 
into the kingdom of his beloved son that he loves, and now we are a new creation. We are a new creature. Paul said, if any man is in Christ, he isn't what he used to be, but he is a new creature. You are a new version of humanity. You do not any longer have the rights or the exemptions to be able to hold on to the excuses as being like everybody else. You are not like everybody else because God has put his own spirit on the inside. You are no longer what you used to be, but now you are a new creature. You are a new creation. And God has begun the beautiful work of eternity right now in our hearts. And by his own spirit alive on the inside of us, he is readying us now to live and rule with Jesus forever. We are a new creation. We are a people that embody God himself. You are not like everybody else because you are born again. And that being born again is born from above, not from the earth, but by God's own spirit. By his own spirit that is now in you. Jesus was a man and he had to die. He had to die because the penalty for sin was death. And Jesus knew, hear this, when Moses is desiring to see God's glory, what does God tell him? He says, no man can see me in the fullness of my glory and live. Because the penalty of sin that was wielded throughout all of creation, causing corruption, it had wages attached to it. And those wages or the sentence against humanity was death. Adam and Eve were convinced they were deceived in order to sin in an attempt for the enemy to think that he could derail what God was desiring to do in and with creation. Listen to this. The enemy thought that he could take advantage of God's own holiness and righteousness. He thought that he could manipulate the system. He thought that he could use God's own commitment to his own standards against him. If I can get them to sin, you'll never be able to do with them what you desire to do with them. Because I understand that flesh that bears the consequence of sin will never be able to behold you because of how holy you are, because of how righteous you are, because of how other than you are, because of how perfect you are. And so if I can find the loophole in a perfect system, I'll be able to use your own standards of righteousness and holiness against you. And so the enemy comes to Adam and Eve and he convinces them, he deceives them to sin, believing that if he can get humanity to sin, that he can forever derail God's desires in order to redeem a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to serve forever in the judgment alongside of his son. But what he did, what he never considered, is that God would come and do it himself. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that if the rulers of the age would have ever considered 
what was actually going to happen when they crucified Jesus. They never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Not to understand that God believes in his own standards so much so that if it requires him coming through the womb of a woman and living a perfect life, the vehicle of human flesh taking on the embodiment of a man, a real fleshly man, being fully man but fully God, they never thought for a moment that God would satisfy all of the accusations against humanity by his willingness to lay down his own life. But Jesus lays down his life as a man so that by the Spirit he can be raised from the dead as a man, as a man, where he is now, which means he was not a man prior to the initial coming of Christ. We must consider what is actually happening in the moment where Jesus is crucified, where, where he's lowered into the depths of hell itself. And when God's spirit says, there's no way that I can let you lay there. Yes, the human side. Yes, the humanity portion. Yes, the sinfulness that you took upon your own life. For he that knew no sin became sin so that now you and I might have a way to become the righteous of God. We have to understand that when Jesus raised from the dead as a man by the power of the Spirit, that he alone not only ascended into the heavens as a man, but he made a way so that now you and I will be able to ascend into the air to meet him when he comes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writes and he says there's coming a moment where the twinkling of an eye or the sounding of the trumpet when the clouds will part and the sky will crack and there will be lightning but the Son of Man will come riding upon the clouds with all of his host and myriads of angels and in that day the dead in Christ will rise and those that are alive at the time of his appearing, what does he say? He says they will ascend to meet him in the cloud so that they can descend to rule forever when he comes to establish his kingdom. God told Moses, I can't let you see me because if you saw me the way that I'm willing to unveil myself to you, it would kill you because of the sin and the corruption that's on the inside of you. For the penalty of sin is death and your human side deserves death, but I'm going to satisfy the system. I'm going to perfect a way in order for you, and not just only you, but a bunch of you, all of you that are willing to pledge your allegiance, all of you that are willing to put your faith in the gospel, all of you that are willing to repent and believe, all of you that are willing to bow your knee, I will make a way so that my desires for my son to have a companion will not be derailed by the enemy's deception. And Revelation 22 tells us that in the last days, there's going to be a corporate cry that erupts from the earth. It says, for in those days, the spirit and the bride will say, come. Hear that. In the last days, our primary way of the bride. What does that mean? That means that we will realize at some point in our journey with Jesus that we belong to him and only him. And the work that he's doing in us belongs to him. 
And it serves a unique purpose that is bigger than my life. It serves a purpose that satisfies his desires. Because God is using all of time in order to form a people to present to his son. And there's coming a moment towards the end of the age where there's going to be a corporate cry that erupts from the bride. And it is going to be in perfect union. Hear that, the spirit and the bride. It did not say that they were saying something different. It did not say that they had different desires. It did not say that their intentions were after a whole bunch of things, but it said that they were after one thing. Because there's coming a moment, and it's even happening now, as God is purifying a people. He is purging his body. He is raising up covenant lovers. He is reestablishing a vision of his son and his coming kingdom in the hearts of his people. God is doing something right now in order to bring us into a deeper union and an experience with the Holy Ghost because of his desires that are at work in us. And there is a cry that is coming out of those that love him. Because we are realizing more and more that we do not belong to this world, but we belong to Jesus. The church belongs to Jesus. Now, I know some of you are shouting, but let me tell you what also the church doesn't belong to. The church doesn't belong to the world. It belongs to Jesus. The church doesn't belong to America. It belongs to Jesus. The church doesn't belong to a political party. The church's power is not found in its politics. It's found in its authority of its king. The church has attempted to to find power in politics for way too long. We have all types of political lobbyists that have just created us as another demographic of people in America. And politicians know they have to say what we want them to say so that they can gain our vote. But let me just tell you something, and let me exhort you this way. It doesn't matter to me who's in office, because I know who's on the throne. And it's never mattered if government us. The church of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. It's never mattered if government favored us. Look over the history of the ages and find the different unique time periods where there was extreme darkness and wickedness and persecution against the church. Right now, much of our American conversation is foreign to the rest of the world as they have committed their lives to this king and his kingdom. There are those on a daily basis that are living in fear from people kicking down their door and breaking into their homes because of the allegiance that they have pled to Jesus. There are people right now throughout the nations that are living on a day-to-day basis wondering if they're going to make it through the end of the day because they love him and they realize that they're in the world, but they're no longer out of the world and that there is now great hostility because of radical ideologies that surround them. And some of them are being burned. Some of them are being murdered. Some of them are being tortured. Some of them are being beheaded. And here we are in America thinking that we are persecuted because we invite somebody to church and they don't want to come. The church doesn't belong to America. It belongs to Jesus. The church doesn't belong to a 501c3. It belongs to Jesus. The church doesn't belong to the Democrats. The church doesn't belong to the Republicans. The church doesn't belong to the independent group. The church belongs to Jesus. 
And we must, in our day, take a few steps back and survey the landscape of time and history and reestablish the main thing in our heart. Jesus said, preach this gospel to all creation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them or discipling them with all of what I have commanded you. We must understand that our missional purpose in time, while we still have time, is to ready the nations for the return of the king. This is what discipleship means. Live now in light of what you know is real. Live now in light of what you know is coming. Perfect your life now in a way that all of heaven will amen your lifestyle because they will say, you get it. You've actually seen it. You've been gripped with a vision of the age to come. You've been possessed with God's spirit and you understand the work of the Holy Ghost on the inside of you. Live now. Disciple your life now so that you live in the world, but you are readying the rest of the world by the testimony of your life, by the things that you're committed to, believing that Jesus will come again. And when he does, you're already living in a way. You're already living in a way that makes sense for the crossing over into eternity. Discipleship is we are readying our own heart for the return of Jesus because we've become gripped with a vision of the age to come. Lord, would you restore a vision of the age to come in our hearts, an understanding of the ultimate and eternal implications to the life that we are living now in the flesh, where we are gripped by God's spirit, we are filled, we are born again, we are a new creation, and we are living in light of the rule of Jesus. Not just when we get to heaven, but we are living in light of the rule of Jesus now. He is king, not then, but now, and he is king in my heart, and I have bowed, and I am living in light of his kingship now, and I am announcing to the rest of the world, this is the gospel. It is the heralding of the promise of God to send his son again and to reconcile all things things. This is what Romans 8 tells us. All of creation is groaning right now. Why? Because it knows that things are wrong. It knows that sin has corrupted God's desires. It knows that there's a lot of brokenness in the world and that no world system, no man's strategy, no political narrative is ever going to satisfy and evict, if you will, all of what sin has produced in our life experience. And therefore, creation is groaning. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we are longing and groaning as we live in this earthly tent. Because we know, because of God's spirit in us, that we were made for more than the moment. And he says that there's a groaning on the inside. Because God has put himself in us. And we realize that there's coming a moment whether we pass into the grave or whether we're alive at the time of his appearing. Paul says in alignment, in harmony with the psalmist, O death, where is your sting? 
Because he understands that now, because God has satisfied his own system, that death is a tool. Death is a tool that serves God's desires. Because death is no longer the final penalty that's against us. Death is no longer what the enemy can use, to, but death is now what God uses to forever transform us. <laughs> because through the channel of death, we become alive and glorified forever, beautifully beholding the face of Jesus forever. Oh, death, where is your sting? I'm telling you, revival will spark for real when people that are bound by self-preservation finally get free. <laughs> Where a people become more worried about Jesus and his mission than they are about the protecting of their own lives. Where we understand, like Paul said, to be here in the body is a benefit for you because I get to minister and I get to labor for God's desires while there's still time to do so. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord so even through death, we are unstoppable. And the catalyst for revival will be a people that get free from self-preservation, that realize that life are ultimately going to be the ones that end up losing their life. But those that are willing to lose their life, hear this, for my sake and the gospel, the announcement of the gospel is God's promise that he will send his son again to make all things right that we all know are wrong. And through God's goodness, he will eliminate the experience because of the penalty of sin that has infiltrated every level and layer of life as we know it. Because God cannot be as good as he reveals himself to be unless he ultimately destroys everything that is ruining the quality of life that he created you for and desires you for. Salvation is not just being secured for heaven, but it's the elimination of everything that rejects God's life and love and the boundaries of his leadership. And eternity will be a place that is separate from the experience of sin. And we are announcing this gospel. The king will come again. Paul said, I am a herald. He said, I am an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5.20, I am an ambassador for this king and his kingdom. You see, in the ancient days, a herald went before the king. And the herald brought the announcement to cities that the king was planning to visit. And if the king knew that he was going to visit certain cities, he would send his herald in order to announce his coming. Paul said, I am a herald of this gospel, announcing to you that while there is still time, you can repent your faith in the gospel. You can involve your life into what God is doing, and you can become a part of God's solution to ready all of the nations of the earth before he releases his son and sends him again with his kingdom, his rewards, and his judgments. This is the gospel that we announce while there is still time. Give your life to Jesus. While there is still time, repent and put your faith in the gospel. While there is still time, involve yourself 
with what God is doing in time. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.